Um, I wonder, when you watch the news at the minute, do you feel very peaceful afterwards? I would imagine not. Um, if you turn on the news, I, I, I just went onto the, the, the news last night and I saw the great news of, was it 222 new coronavirus cases in Northern Ireland as of yesterday? Um, mass protests taking place in Trafalgar Square, feeling that the government is beginning to infringe upon our, our, uh, our individual liberties with lockdown. There was a murder, there was a shooting, there was all sorts of things going on. And it's almost as if you kind of wake up, you look at the news, if you're, if, if you're anything like me, one of the first things you do in the day is you check the news, if that's on TV or on the internet. And it's almost as if, uh, now you've woken up in a lovely mood, let's ruin that. Um, because we live in a, in a world that, although we're maybe not at war, I, I would say very few of us would say that we live in a very peaceful society at the moment. And if you want to demonstrate, if you think we do live in a peaceful society and you want to try and demonstrate it otherwise, I encourage you to bring up politics at your workplace tomorrow um, and you'll probably discover how unpeaceful we've become. And whenever we think about peace, we probably have a very narrow view of it. We probably have a very narrow view of peace that thinks peace is merely an absence of conflict. It's merely the absence of war or the absence of an argument or the absence of you having a bad relationship with somebody. But peace is so much fuller than that because peace is not just an idea, but as Christians, we believe that peace is also in a way a person. And, and this morning, we're gonna see that in really four different ways. We're gonna see how Jesus is our peace. We're gonna see how, he, how he's our peace with God. He's our peace with each other and he's our, our peace within ourselves. So the first thing we're gonna see is the idea that Jesus is our peace. And you'll notice the reading that we had there to try and get the idea across that blessed are the peacemakers. I read a bit from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter nine, that, that there's this wonderful promise that is given all the way back in Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus is born, that talks about his birth and says that unto us a child is given, or unto a child is born, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Because whenever Jesus shows up in the New Testament, he's showing up at a really important moment in Israel's history. He's showing up at a moment wherever the people of God are longing for peace. But they're longing for peace in that very narrow way. They're longing for peace in a way that is the absence, or absence? Absence of conflict. Because often throughout the Old Testament, whenever we would see peace enacted out amongst God's people, it would be mainly in that way. What would generally happen is there would be an oppressor who would have captured the Israelites in some way or invaded the Israelites in some way, and they wanted peace within their society so that they could have kind of normal order resumed and they could be brought back to worship God. So in the book of Exodus, we probably maybe know the story of Moses who brings peace by the grace of God to the people of God by leading them out of the, their captors' country of Egypt so that they may have peace with God in the wilderness and enter into fellowship with him. Or we might think of the judges where peace is restored in the land of Israel whenever a judge rises up like Samson or Gideon or Ehud and is able to overthrow and outcast the people who've invaded them, and they're able to restore normal religious life and normal kind of civil life within, within 
Israel. And whenever Jesus gets up and says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, he's saying that at a point in Israel's history where they are wanting peace, but they are wanting peace in that absence of conflict way. Because what has happened um, about 90 years before Jesus is born, the emperor, or not emperor, the general Pompey has come down into Israel and he's conquered it all. He's taken Jerusalem. And Romans, you know, Romans were not a high class society. Um, Often whenever we think of the Romans, we, we often think because they were very old and they had a lot of marble statues, they were therefore very advanced or very kind of erudite, lovely people. But Rome was not a sort of culture that would get alongside Judaism terribly well. Where maybe in Greece you would have went to the theater or you'd have listened to some music or seen a play. In Rome, you watched people batter the life out of each other. Um, Where maybe in Greece, you would have had poetry or philosophy. In Rome, what you had was really murder or eating so much that it caused you to vomit. And then once you'd vomited, you'd space to eat even more. Roman society was a society based around the idea of enjoying power as much as you could, enjoying privilege and your wealth as much as you could, and indulging in every sense of the word. And then they meet these Jews. And these Jews in Israel, they don't even eat pork. They don't know the joys of bacon. They don't know the joys of ham. They've all these weird rules that they follow, and they don't seem to indulge their flesh the way the Romans did. And the Romans look at them, and rather than thinking, oh, these great people who have self-control, they look at them and go, oh, these weak people. These weak people who don't do what they want. These weak people who are following all these rules. And so the Romans, as they invaded Israel, even though Judaism was a legal religion and they were allowed to practice their religion, it was not what you would call a peaceful interchange. There's stories of Roman soldiers going into synagogues and grabbing the Jewish Bible, the Torah, and burning it. There's stories of Romans going and stealing the precious artifacts out of Jewish places of worship, like a menorah, which is like a a Jewish candlestick. There is these stories of how whenever they would, Jewish, Jewish people would walk through the streets and if they walked past Roman soldiers, they would be heckled or accused of things. They lived constantly in this world where they were reminded that they were, they were viewed as weak by their oppressors. And so whenever they were looking for a Messiah, they thought what a Messiah would be was somebody who would rise up and lead a rebellion and overthrow the, the Roman oppressors overthrow these Roman invaders. So whenever Jesus talks about peace, they think initially that, oh, Jesus is meaning peace in a way that drives out the Romans and we can install him as king and we can be victors once again. But that's not the way Jesus talks about peace. Because Jesus goes through these Beatitudes and as we see, it is not a lifestyle that is one of power and military might. But Jesus is peace. Jesus' peace is one that pierces into our very being and roots itself in the very marrow of our soul. It changes us from the very depths of our being. And it will not look very impressive and it will not look very mighty, but it will be a wonderful richness and depth of peace that cannot be established in any other way. 
because we believe that Jesus, whenever he gets up and gives these words, he is beginning a ministry that will ultimately end, and not with peace with an invading empire, and not peace between nations, and not world peace, uh, but rather peace with God. That is the first and foremost thing about Jesus' ministry. It is about us having peace with God. The issue with Jesus' listeners was, was not necessarily that they had Roman invaders in their country. It was that they themselves did not have peace with God in their hearts. And wonder sometimes with the way we talk about being saved as a Christian or salvation as a Christian, we talk about it in maybe ways of, of kind of quite legal ways. So it's just as if I've never sinned, I've been justified, or I've been, Jesus is my salvation. He, I'm saved, I'm saved from hell, I, I'm able to go to heaven. But maybe we don't think about it as the way that the Bible often talks about our, our conversion and talks about coming to Jesus is that we were once, as Romans 8 verse or 5, or Romans 5 verse 10 would say, we were once enemies of God. And now we have been reconciled to him through the death of his son. Our, our starting place in life is not one where we are indifferent towards God and we wake up. Our starting place in life is that we are actively enemies of God in need of reconciliation to him because we can't do it ourselves because we are too selfish, too sinful, too blinded by our own own flesh to want to reconcile ourselves to God. And often that's not the way we think about faith because often the way we think about faith is that God is sat sat up there on the clouds and he's doing a lot of well-wishing. You know, he wishes the best for you and hopes that you get on well and it would be really great if you came to know him, but sure, if I won't bother him, he won't bother me. Maybe that's your reaction towards God this morning is that you think that if I don't bother with him, he won't bother with me and we'll have this deal going on. I once heard a story that illustrated the issue with that really helpfully. Um, Imagine you're in your house one day, you're sitting on your sofa and you hear a knock at the door. You go, as you open the door, there's a person standing there and, and you say, hello, can I help you? And without speaking to you, they barge on in. They sit down on the sofa that you were sitting on and they go, you know, this is lovely, this is great, this is a really comfy sofa. And you say, well, wh- why have you just walked into my house? They continue to ignore you, they get up and they go into the kitchen and they open the fridge and they begin eating all the yogurts and all the fruit and all the things in your fridge and they go, oh, this stuff tastes great, this is amazing, I love this. And you go, well, I don't care if you like the food, why are you in my house? And they continue to ignore you. After they've had a wee bit of a meal at your fridge, they go into your bedroom, they lie down in your bed and you go, oh, this is so lovely and soft. Oh, I could lie here all day. Oh, this is wonderful. I really must get one of these. And all the while you're like, I don't care if you think it's soft. Why are you in my house? What are you doing? And all the while they persistently ignore you, refusing even to acknowledge the fact that you're there and giving you the cold shoulder. I wanna ask you, if somebody did that to you, would you describe them as a friend or an enemy? I think you would probably want to have a physical encounter with them at some stage, and you probably want to call them some very unchristian names. Because the opposite of hatred, or the opposite of love, is is not hatred. Often the opposite of love is indifference. And if we walk around this world of God's, enjoying the food, enjoying the comforts, and enjoying the delights, ignoring him, we are not in a position of indifference, but we are in a position of enmity. And Jesus comes and says, blessed are the peacemakers 
because Jesus is the great and ultimate peacemaker who reconciles us to God because we are in deep need of reconciliation to him. Jesus came so that whenever we confess our sins and we, and we, we cry out to Jesus, that he would reconcile us to God so that we would have nothing to fear but might have wonderful, wonderful, abundant peace with God knowing that he delights in us and calls us his children. And that is what equips us to have peace with each other. That first kind of building block that we have peace with God is the thing that we then build on to have peace with each other. You know, in some ways I could get up and I could say some very, very easy things that you would expect me to say about a passage like this, like blessed are the peacemakers. I think we would all presume that it is a good and godly thing for us to not want to bicker and argue with people at work. It is a good and godly thing for us to not talk about people behind their back. It is a good and godly thing that whenever we're about to say that snide remark or that that passive aggressive remark, it is a good and godly thing that we quiet that voice. But here's the thing. The peace that we need and the peace that Jesus came to give us starts not at those surface level issues, but it starts down in the depths of our heart. Because this peacemaking isn't like optional little add-ons we do to make our life richer. It is something that ought to flow out of a peace we have with God that is within us. There was a, a, a minister in America in the 1700s called Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards... Um, had a huge problem. There was a massive revival took place in Massachusetts whenever he was minister there. Thousands of people were coming to faith and that might not sound like a problem, but the problem began to arise one or two years after all these people came to faith where he began to see all what he thought were all these lovely devout Christians turning away from God. And he, he wrote down in a little book called The Religious Affections, which is quite short. You, you, can, you could read it in a Sunday afternoon. He wrote down... 12 signs of true conversion. And of those 12 signs of true conversion, he also made 12 signs that were not really true signs. And those were things that often we think mean someone's converted, but he said weren't really signs. Because often he would see people doing things like being incredibly emotional in worship. And this is in the 1700s, whenever it was a cappella psalm singing, so it was not the most emotional experience you will encounter. But he would see these people being very emotional and a couple years later, they would be nowhere. He would see people who were able to recite huge amounts of scripture, probably more than any of us, no matter how well-versed we were uh, in Sunday school. And he would see after a couple of years, they would disappear. He would see people who seemed to express and talk about a great love for God and a great love for Jesus and a great love for their fellow Christians. And two or three years later, they were nowhere. But he noticed one thing or, a few, or 12 things that abided in those throughout their whole Christian life. And he said this, that the Christians he noticed who would abide throughout their whole life were those who were attended with a change of nature. People who were changed in the very depths of their soul. People who were lamb-like, dove-like spirits with the temper of Jesus Christ naturally promoting a spirit of love and meekness and quietness and forgiveness and mercy as it appears in Jesus. Their hearts were softened 
and they attended to following Christian tenderness of spirit. And in their lives, they saw all the fruits of Christian practice. So this is not to say that if you, in order to be a Christian, you need to become somebody who, who's dove-like and lamb-like, and, and that's to almost put the cart before the horse. But rather, as Christians, we ought to see these things being changed in our lives as we become peaceable peacemakers, people who are lamb-like, dove-like, gentle and meek, people who love peace, people who delight to love the way Jesus loved and look upon other sinners with the heart that Jesus looks upon sinners with, one that is gentle and one that is lowly and one that wants to see them reconcile to God. And if we don't have that heart, we want to really come back to Jesus and ask ourselves hard questions. And finally, the thing I want to talk about is peace with ourselves. So a lot of you, whenever I began saying about being love-like and dove-like, you thought, you know, I would love, love to be a peaceful, gentle, tender person. But at half eight tomorrow morning, I need to get four kids under the age of eight out of the house with matching shoes. And that is not a peaceful morning. And there's some of you who'll be thinking, you know, I would love to be this lovely, peaceful person, but I need to sit for half an hour to three quarters of an hour at one junction to get into my work tomorrow because there's a queue going back from those traffic lights. And I don't feel very peaceful or loving or wonderful or lamb-like or dove-like. And I think we run into problems with these Beatitudes if we begin to adopt them the way we adopt New Year's resolutions where we think, well, if I must become dove-like and I must become peaceful and become a peacemaker, I'll add that to the to-do list. You know, I, I won't say those mean things and I'll try harder, but what happens, with, what happens with our New Year's resolutions every year is we get to February and we've broken them all. No, the thing that has to change in us is something at a much deeper level and something that flows from us having been made peace with God through Jesus. Because if we want to become this peaceful peaceful person. It happens not with a flicking of a switch, but a day by day realizing that we have encountered the grace of Jesus in a way that cannot help but change us. And it is being reminded and being able to meditate upon and being able to, to really chew over the most wonderful truth and blessing of this beatitude. And that is that our identity is not bound up in our job. Our identity is not bound up in our career. Our identity is not bound up in our possessions, our social standing, if we're part of the golf club, if we're in that friend group, if our family members all are, are nice and polite and healthy. It, it is bound up in one immutable aspect of your person. And that is that you are a child of God. And how much anxiety from your life that manifests itself in anger? How, how much of those moments in your life where you feel so devoid of peace could be filled with wonderful hope if we knew, which we can know through Jesus, that we can be called children of God and that if we are in Christ and we love Jesus and we are following him, that that is an aspect of our identity, that there is no power on heaven or on earth that can change that. That we can take great comfort in knowing that we have been adopted 
by God to become heirs with Jesus. And we worship a God who is not in the habit of forgetting his children. Can I encourage you? Let that truth permeate through so much of your life. Meditate upon it and think upon it. And see how maybe day by day in 10 or 20 years time, we see the peace of God flourishing and growing in our hearts like a budding rose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great news that we can have peace with you through Jesus. And Father, would that good news transform our whole lives? We pray this in his wonderful, beautiful, and peaceful name. Amen.